And now, Lord, as we come to your word, we thank you for your word and we remember that your word accomplishes your work in us. We remember, Lord, that your word is sufficient for all things. Everything that we need to know about life and salvation and you is contained in your word. And so we ask, O Lord, that you would illuminate the text for us through through the power of your Spirit working in us. Again, give us not only understanding, not only a set of facts, but give us the conviction to act accordingly. We pray that you would use your word to grow us in Christ's likeness. And we pray that as even I, your lowly servant, preach your word, that we would hear the voice of our Good Shepherd. We pray, O Lord, that You would feed us now with Your Word and that You would nourish us and grow us in Christ's likeness for His glory. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles with you, please turn to John chapter 17. We're going to be continuing our study of what's called the High Priestly Prayer of Christ, uh, which is all of John chapter 17. Uh, This is our fourth sermon. Uh, We're kind of not blazing through this chapter at all, Uh, but we're going to be looking at John chapter uh, 17, verse 3 today. And this is going to bring about a really important subject for us, something that there's a lot of confusion about, I think, with a lot of people and that is eternal life. What is eternal life? What's eternal life even about? You know, I almost wonder if most Christians, or at least a good number of Christians, think that uh, eternal life is basically another term for heaven, and that uh, Christians, or at least a lot of Christians, have the idea that you know, heaven is this place that's going to be boring, and so eternal life is boring. They think heaven's going to be a place where, you know, we just have indefinite time, and we really don't have a lot to do, and so we just do whatever we want. It's just going to be this very mundane place, uh, kind of like a library, except every now and then we'll sing. Uh, these are very wrong ideas. They're very secular ideas, if we're being honest. These are ideas about heaven and eternal life that do not line up with Scripture whatsoever. Uh, Several years ago, there was a book titled Heaven is for Real. Um, The story behind the book was that a child named Colton Burpo died, uh, and when he was dead, he went to heaven, and then he was resuscitated by doctors, uh, and he lived to tell the story of what heaven was like. Or, supposedly, it ended up being debunked. But there was all, kind, uh, all kinds of press and hype surrounding the release of the book. Uh, he was interviewed. He was on uh, you know, famous TV shows. Uh, in one interview, a, a journalist asked Colton, who was still very young at the time of his interview, uh, what he remembered about heaven, and he described it as being colorful, having all the colors that we have here on earth, and then some other ones. Uh, he said that it was a place that was just like earth, except without sin. Now, while that story was debunked, what it revealed is that people really are curious about heaven, and 
very confused about heaven, uh, which is reflected in the fact that that book became a bestseller and was also made into a movie. Uh, Now, this all happened before Colton actually grew up a little bit and eventually admitted that he had made the whole thing up, which a lot of us actually already knew because the descriptions of heaven that he was giving did not line up with the descriptions of heaven that we find in Scripture. But he eventually admitted that he had made the whole thing up and that his parents had told him how to talk about or how to describe what heaven was going to be like. It was just scandalous. But again, what it revealed is that people are confused about heaven. If we want to know what heaven is like, we have to turn to Scripture, not to personal anecdotal stories from people. Jesus said that He was going to prepare a place for His disciples. And He emphasized that they knew the way to get there because they knew Him. He didn't tell them all the details about what heaven was going to be like. That wasn't important. What was important is that they knew how to get there and they did know how to get there because they knew Him. So, What I want to start with is making it very clear that heaven and eternal life aren't exactly the same thing. Rather, only those who have uh, received eternal life will go to heaven. The Apostle John uses a lot of terms throughout his gospel to refer to salvation. Uh, for example, we find the word saved. Uh, we find that word in John. Another phrase that we find, uh, we find it in chapter 3, is born again, uh, which is a, a term referring to an aspect of salvation. Uh, but eternal life is a third term that also refers to salvation. We find it a lot of times throughout John's gospel. And so I want to draw our attention to that term today, uh, because Jesus draws our attention to that term in the verse that we're going to be looking at today. Now there's a very real danger of Christians being very confused by this term. I'll admit that for the first 10 years, 10 or 12 years that I was saved, I didn't understand this term. I, I was very confused by it, because it seems to be speaking about a quantity of time an amount of time, which would be an indefinite amount, eternal time, right? Uh, Unending eternal time. That's what it sounds like. And that is true. Salvation does include an indefinite amount of time. It's a life within the believer that begins the moment they savingly believe on Jesus Christ. And that life carries on beyond this life and into glory. Though this physical body will die, though this physical life will end, our spiritual life does not. We read this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. This is when God was creating the cosmos. God was creating everything in the universe. And we read this in Genesis chapter 2, verse 9. Out of the ground the Lord God caused to grow every tree that is pleasing to the sight and good for food. The tree of life also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now when we read that, especially when we've heard the whole story of the fall, you know, a hundred or two hundred times, it's really easy for us to overlook the fact that there are actually two very specific trees that are named right here in this verse because so much attention uh, ends up being given to the tree of good and evil knowledge Uh, in the following chapter. Now, of course, Adam and Eve didn't eat from the tree of life. 
Instead, they ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thereby sinning against God and falling into a fallen condition. And when they fell, we read something really interesting in the aftermath. God, God has dealt with them. And then we read this in Genesis chapter 3, verses 22 to 24. We read this. It says, Then the Lord God said, This is a Trinitarian conversation, by the way. God speaking to Himself. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, and now he might stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden to cultivate the ground from which he was taken. So he drove the man out, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he stationed the cherubim with flaming sword, which turned every direction to guard the way to the tree of life. Now it's interesting to note that the reason that God drove Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden was to prevent them from eating of that tree, the tree of life. You might ask, why would God do such a thing? Why did it it matter? Why, Why didn't He want them to go and eat from the tree of life? And the answer is because He loved them and He created them for eternal fellowship with Himself. And if they had eaten from the tree of life, they would have physically lived forever. And if they physically lived forever, they could not have fellowship with God because their flesh was fallen. And God cannot be in the presence of sin. See, the tree of life represented the eternal life which Adam would have gained as a reward if he had obeyed God's command in what we refer to as the covenant of works. If Adam had been faithful to what God had instructed him to do and what not to do, this would have been his reward. Adam would have received this eternal life, this eternal fellowship with God, but he ate from the tree of good and evil knowledge. And so God needed to prevent him from going to the tree of life. And from that point forward, the Scriptures reveal how God, through what's called the covenant of grace, which is opposite the covenant of works, how the covenant of grace will restore to Adam's offspring through a Redeemer what was lost when they were driven from the garden, specifically access to eternal life. The tree of life. It could not be accessed or reached by the covenant of works through human effort, through being a good person, through doing good works. couldn't be accessed that way. The covenant of works was broken. And from that point forward, all it could do, because our nature was fallen, all it could do was condemn us. The only other way that man could reach the tree of life is by grace alone. The tree of life was actually a shadow of Christ. Uh, The great reformer Francis Turretin noted this. He said, Christ is the true tree of life because as mediator, He is the prince of life, giving life to the world and eternal life in heaven by glory. For He is the resurrection and the life who will most certainly bestow upon His own eternal life. Truly, He is the only tree because no one except Christ is the author of eternal life nor is there salvation in any other. End quote. Now Jesus refers to this gift of eternal life 
that's found only in Him. He refers to it so many times throughout John. And He refers to it here again in the text that we'll be looking at today. The point of this verse is that eternal life is not only a quantity of life, but it's also a quality of life. It's a kind of life that involves knowing God and walking in obedient fellowship with God. So our text is found, again, within Jesus' high priestly prayer. In this first section of uh, the prayer, Jesus uh, is consecrating and praying for Himself. This section is from verses 1 to 5. Now, if you just look at verses 1 to 3, Jesus has prayed that He would be glorified, but He prayed that He would be glorified so that the Father would be glorified because the Father had given Him authority over all flesh so that Jesus could give eternal life to all who are given to Him by the Father. So, God's eternal plan of redemption was proceeding as planned. There were no hiccups Christ would give eternal life to all whom the Father had given Him. But let's be careful to define and to understand what eternal life is. What is this eternal life that Jesus gives to all whom the Father gives to Him? As Jesus continues, He now defines eternal life for us in verse 3. Let's look at verse 3 together. Jesus continues saying, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, what's clear here is that the subject of eternal life is central to God's plans of redemption from the beginning. It was seen in the shadows which pointed to Christ throughout the Old Testament, and it was fulfilled in Christ's work as revealed in the Gospels. It's then elaborated on and explained elsewhere in, uh, throughout the New Testament. Paul refers to eternal life many times in his writings. For example, Romans chapter 6, verse 23 says, "...the wage of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord." So let me start by warning you against thinking of eternal life only as a future blessing to be received when you enter into glory, but something that maybe you have the promise of it now, but you, you don't have it now. You don't have it yet. No. It is something that will be received in glory, yes. But it isn't only that. It is a promise of future blessing, but it's not just a promise of future blessing. We have many blessings in store for us in eternity. No question about that. Jesus clearly spoke about it that way, and Jude referred to it that way in his epistle. So I'm not saying that it's not biblical to think of eternal life as a future blessing, because it is. What I'm saying is it's not biblical to think of eternal life as only a future blessing. Rather, what I want us to see is that it's both a future hope and reality, and it is a present possession for those who are in Christ Jesus. It is a certain type of life that characterizes God's people now. Right now. Right where we are today. Jesus says, this is eternal life, that they may know You. He's speaking to the Father. That they may know You, the only true God. Now, again, we want to be really careful to define our terms here because there are a lot of people who claim to know God. In fact, there are a lot of Christians 
who claim to know God, and yet their life seems to be saying something else. Uh, It seems to be saying that they don't actually know God at all. Uh, We should be reminded of uh, Jesus' warning in Matthew chapter 7 of those who will stand before him in judgment one day, saying, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Do you see what their merit is in their minds? Do you see why they think they deserve to go into heaven? Because of what they have done. That's the covenant of works. What they need is grace. But they're counting on, they're standing on what they have done. And Jesus tells us how He'll respond to that. He says, He'll say unto them, I never knew you. There's that word, knew. Past tense of no. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Ah, so lawlessness, practicing lawlessness, has something to do with knowing Jesus and knowing God. Knowing God and being known by God. What could possibly be more important than that? Nothing. So let's start with this. Since anyone can claim to know God, what does Jesus mean when he says that eternal life means to know God? After all, there's even a sense in which the demons know God, and yet they don't have eternal life. Now for starters, I think it's important that we realize that there are two words in uh, the biblical Greek language that get translated as to know in English. Uh, The first Greek word that gets translated as know or to know is oida. Oida is a word that refers to knowledge that somebody has just intuitively. It conveys uh, the thought uh, of something inward uh, and not to something that's immediately derived from what is outside of us. So back in chapter 4, Jesus said to the woman at the well, You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Uh, Both of those uses of the verb to know are translated from the Greek word oida. Uh, That's not the word that Jesus uses here in John 17, 3. The word he uses here is gnosko. Gnosko suggests a progression in knowledge. Uh, It implies an active relationship between uh, the person and an object that the person is getting to know. It's implying uh, a process of of learning, of progressively learning. That's the word that Jesus uses here. The fact that this is a knowledge that is is learned, that that it's acquired and that it grows as a result of an ongoing process, what we might call a relationship. It's, it's very significant because what it tells us is that Jesus isn't saying that eternal life consists in knowing about God in the sense that we might have a set of facts, we might know a thing or two about God, but rather he's talking about having a relationship with God. But it's not just any relationship, because the truth is, that's a term that people like to use. People like to refer to having a relationship with God, but the fact is, everybody's got a relationship with God. Everybody. He is either your judge, or he's your adoptive father. Those are two different types of relationships, and everybody is in one of those two categories. See, the English word to know is really, for the most part, a very inadequate 
word because it can have so many different implications. It can mean so many different things. One sense of knowing would be you know, just having an awareness of something. Uh, when I say that the United States was founded in 1776, for example, that's, you know, that's just textbook knowledge. Uh, I wasn't there when it happened. I wasn't personally involved in it happening. I'm just aware of the fact that it did happen because I, at some point, was either told it or I read it in a book. But there was no relational process involved. It was just a fact that I memorized. This is the type of knowledge that people have of God by nature. Just an awareness. They, they know that He exists in the sense that they're aware that He exists. Romans 1 tells us that everyone knows that God exists. So in the ultimate sense, there's really no such thing as an atheist. And so therefore, they stand guilty before God, completely without excuse for not coming to Him, for not believing in Him, because they didn't act on that knowledge. They didn't act on the awareness of God that they instinctively have. Paul writes this in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 21. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth in unrighteousness, because that which is known about God, the things that they're aware of, is evident within them. For God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood through what has been made, so that they are without excuse. For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. So instinctively, intuitively, people are aware that God exists. What's clear here, though, is that this is not the same sense that Jesus meant when he connected knowing God to eternal life. These people that Paul's talking about in Romans chapter 1 are people who knew God. That's what he says in verse 21 of Romans 1. But they are clearly not saved. They are clearly under God's judgment. Their knowledge is just an awareness of God's existence, which is insufficient for their salvation. It's only sufficient for their eternal condemnation in hell. Now, it's equally important to understand, however, that Jesus also didn't mean that salvation consists of of simply knowing some facts about God. It's important to know facts about God. Don't get me wrong. That's why we have creeds. That's why we have a confession. Because it is important to know facts about God. People who say, I I don't need any doctrine. Just give me Jesus. Well, how are you going to know Jesus apart from doctrine? You can't, right? So that's kind of a silly statement. But to an extent, they have a point. That uh, what they're trying to say, I think is that it's not enough to just know these facts about God. And and that's correct. Again, even the demons know facts about God. There are atheists and skeptics, supposedly, who hate Christianity, but they... Even they have a few facts about God. You, you You can talk to some of them who have read the Bible. They know quite a few things about what the Bible teaches about God. Puritan 
Anthony Burgess wrote of this kind of knowledge, where we just have a set of facts. We just have that kind of knowledge about God. He says, quote, How apt are men to be puffed up by it. They swell with this wind as those in antiquity that were called Gnostics because of the knowledge they gloried in. But this light may be, and often is, without any heat at all. Their heads are better than their hearts or their hands, so that they are a kind of spiritual monster. A man's head above, but brute beasts below. And he concludes his thoughts by saying this. He says, quote, Look then that with your knowledge there be also a good conscience and a godly life. Otherwise, your knowledge will serve but to make hell hotter for you. End quote. So it's good to know things about God. Don't get me wrong. It is good to have facts about God, but that alone will not suffice for salvation. A third sense that we use the verb to know in is in maybe the experiential sense uh, and this has actually kind of become a huge problem for the church over the course of the past 20 years. Uh, it was really seen in what was called the emergent church of the early 2000s. Uh, there, there was an author not, not too long ago, a couple years ago, who posted a picture on Instagram of her feet in a lake on a Sunday morning, and the post said something like, this is my church today. This is where I'm learning about God. Now, I'm not saying that we can't learn something about God in an experiential sense like that, but this is very dangerous. And any knowledge that we might think that we get experientially always, always, always needs to be tested against God's Word. Because our minds are always inclined to make a God after our own image. And so whatever experiential knowledge we might think we have, it's not enough. It has to be tested against Scripture. Experiential knowledge is definitely not the kind of knowledge that Jesus had in mind here in John 17.3. So what did He mean when He said, this is eternal life that they may know You, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom You have sent? What did He mean there? He meant that we are to know God in a different sense than those three. We're to know Him in the sense that we are learning more and more about Him, but as we do, we're changed by Him. We're transformed. The the knowledge doesn't puff up our minds, rather it conforms us to the image of Christ. You must know things about God. Yes, absolutely. You must have facts about God. No question about it. The question is, to what end? For what purpose? For the sake of simply being a a walking encyclopedia of theology? What good is that? Anyone can have that. Anyone can have that. Demons can be that. But man's natural inclination, this is the danger. Man's natural inclination is always to reject certain things about God that make the natural man feel threatened. This is why so many false views, low views of God exist. It's because man, by nature, does not want to believe that God fits with a very high view of God. They don't want to believe that God is perfect. They don't want to believe that He's just, sovereign, all-knowing, all-powerful, holy, and so on and so forth. 
think of the old argument that goes something like this. If God were all-powerful, He could end all evil. If God were all-powerful and good, He would end all evil. Now, that argument doesn't lead to the conclusion that God doesn't exist. Rather, it's intended to lead to a smaller view of God. It's intended to lead to the conclusion that God either isn't all-powerful or that He isn't good, or, or both. And the answer, the solution for that question, uh, that the, the, the question is trying to steer the, the reader or the listener away from, is that God is both all-powerful and good, but that He's also sovereign and all-wise, and thus He's able to use the evil that men do to accomplish His good purposes. Besides, by what standard would we ever dare to say that God isn't good? Would we use your standard? Would we use my standard? Would we use a Buddhist standard? A Mormon standard? Whose standard would we use? Because we we all might have very different ideas about what constitutes good and thus conversely evil. The conclusion that this must lead us to is that this word has a meaning that transcends your definition or my definition or anyone's definition. Only God determines what is good because as Jesus once told the rich young ruler, only God is good. It's so important, family, that we know the one true God. Anything other than God, the way that He reveals Himself throughout His Word and in nature, is a far lesser God. It's a false God. The false God of open theism, for example, That's a God of man's fallen imagination. Open theism teaches that God is not all-knowing. It it teaches that he, He knows everything that has happened, but He doesn't know the future. He's left it open, which is why it's called open theism. Now, I... I think it's probably derived, this, this, this idea of open theism, that God doesn't know the future, uh, probably came from a desire to give an answer to somebody who uh, asks why God allowed this or that or whatever to happen. Uh, you know, some form of evil that they suffered, that a person suffered maybe. But that is a frighteningly low view and false view of God. That's a God who learns. He knows what's happened, but he doesn't know what's going to happen. And so as things happen, he's constantly learning, which means that he is constantly changing, which means that he's a God who is not infinite. Rather, he's limited. Specifically, he's limited by what he does and doesn't know. A God who changes and is limited cannot be trusted because that God has the potential to become radically different than he was in biblical times than he is today, or who knows? He's just, he can become whatever based on what he knows. He's not always the same. He's constantly changing. That is completely unlike the God of Scripture. We are meant to know the one true God, the God who reveals himself in Scripture as being infinite, as being all knowing, holy, righteous just, unchanging, all-powerful, all-present, all-wise, completely self-sufficient, doesn't need anything outside of Himself. Triune, not consisting of parts. The list goes on and on and on. 
This is the God who is revealed throughout Scripture. And there's a great danger in settling for low views of God, which present Him in a lower fashion because that's more palatable to man. We're more comfortable with a God who wishes that He could have prevented something from happening, but really, why would you be comfortable with a God who wishes that He could change things but can't because He doesn't know? That's a God who isn't sovereign. That's a terrifyingly low view of God. It was A.W. Tozer who once wrote, quote, Among the sins to which the human heart is prone, hardly any other is more hateful to God than idolatry. For idolatry is at the, bo- at the bottom a libel on his character. The idolatrous heart assumes that God is other than he is, in itself a monstrous sin, and substitutes for the true God one made after its own likeness. End quote. That's what low views of God, like the God of open theism, do. This is exactly why Tozer would say elsewhere, quote, what comes to our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us, end quote. The knowledge that Jesus is talking about here in John 17.3 is the kind of knowledge that has a particular, a specific effect on us. It changes us. It transforms us. It doesn't puff us up as we learn more about Him. It doesn't cause us to become prideful as we learn more about Him. Like when you learn other things, it causes people to become prideful. It actually has the opposite effect. It doesn't make us prideful. It knocks us down a few notches. It humbles us. A right view of God, a high view of God, causes a low view of self. If you picture God and self on kind of the opposite ends of a seesaw, that's the way it works. A low view of God is caused by and actually exacerbates a high view of self. And conversely, a high view of God is going to cause a low and right view of self. Now, James Montgomery Boyce illustrates the effects of having this this kind of true and transforming knowledge of God with the life and with the ministry and testimony of Moses uh, throughout the beginning of his life. Moses certainly knew things about God. He certainly had a, a set of facts that he believed about God. He knew, as do all people, that God existed. Uh, I'm sure that he had actually heard all the stories that had been passed down through the generations of the way that God had dealt with Abraham and, and Isaac and Jacob. He even seems to have known that God had promised to free Israel from slavery to the Egyptians. But his knowledge of God's, promise, uh, God's promises to free Egypt, uh, free, free Israel from Egypt, also seems to be what provoked him to murder an Egyptian who was abusing one of Moses' Hebrew brethren. And yet, at that point in his life, up until Exodus chapter 3, Moses didn't know God in a relational sense. When it became known that Moses had murdered this Egyptian, he fled from the land of Egypt to a land called Midian, where he took up shepherding of all things, kind of ironically. One day, while he was out tending sheep, he came across a burning bush. The fact that the bush was burning in and of itself was 
kind of strange, but the fact that the flame wasn't consuming the bush was super strange. It was miraculous. So Moses turned toward it and went closer to it to investigate. But God said to him from the bush, Moses, Moses, do not come near here. Remove your sandals from your feet, for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. Did Moses already know that? No. Otherwise, he would have been removing his sandals. He he would have been approaching God reverently. But he wasn't. He had to learn. Why did he need to be instructed in this manner? Because he already knew some things about God, but he didn't know that God was holy. What made the ground that even Moses was standing on, what made that ground holy other than simply the fact that God was present on that land? Moses couldn't have known this intuitively. He had to learn it. So the first thing that Moses had to learn about God is probably the most important thing that we can know about God. And that is that He is holy. He cannot therefore be approached flippantly or casually. He is altogether different from us. He is separate from us. He's clean. And we're defiled by sin. This is something that fallen man hates about God, by the way. Fallen man hates the idea of a holy God. Fallen people hate that He's holy because it underscores the fact that we, by nature and by choice, are not holy. That He's clean and other than we are. We're defiled. We're made unholy by sin. We're irreverent by nature. We cannot, therefore, come to God on our own terms. But we must come on His terms. Our sin makes us too defiled to enter into His presence any other way. And Moses had to learn this. Moses learned this quickly because his reaction in the very next verse is this. We read, Then Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. One of the reasons you knew that Colton Burpo's testimony of going to heaven was fake is that he didn't do this. In Scripture, every time somebody encounters the true living God, they are face down in the dirt. But not Colton Burpo, which was one of the things that tipped people off, that his testimony wasn't real. But Moses, Moses comes face to face with God. And all he can do is turn his face away. He's afraid to even look at God. Have you ever felt that way about God? Afraid to look at Him because you've realized that He's holy? And as a holy God, He hates sin? And and you realize you're, you're covered in sin. I think we all have to come to that point to some degree eventually if we are to know God. And I think that this happens with everyone whom He saves because the truth is, before we heard the Gospel, we were all counting on something as the basis defiled by sin. But when we're confronted with God's holiness, we realize that whatever merit we thought we had, whatever we were trusting and are counting on to be welcomed into His presence is actually worthless in His sight because He's holy. 
God, continuing, God continued revealing things about Himself to Moses in the text. He tells Moses in Exodus 3, verses 7-9, and I have surely seen the affliction of My people who are in Egypt and have given heed to their cry because of their taskmasters. For I am aware of their sufferings. So I have come down to deliver them from the power of the Egyptians and to bring them up from the land to a good and spacious land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. He goes on to say, Now behold, the cry of the sons of Israel has come to me. Furthermore, I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians are oppressing them. Let's stop there for a second and think about what God just revealed to Moses about Himself there. First, Moses learned that God is holy, meaning that He is without sin, that He hates and cannot look upon sin. Secondly, what has He revealed about Himself to Moses in these verses? He's revealed that He is all-present and all-knowing. He's all-present and He's all-knowing. I have surely seen. I am aware of their sufferings. I have come down. The cry of the sons of Israel has come to Me. God reveals to Moses that He sees all. That He knows all about the things that are taking place on earth. He's omniscient. He's all-knowing. And He is omnipresent. He is present in all places. If Moses didn't realize that based on what God says here, he surely realized it when God told Moses exactly how Pharaoh was going to respond to God's demand that he let God's people go. He tells Moses exactly what's going to happen before it happens. Now, how could God do that? How could God give any prophecy for that matter? But specifically here, how could he know exactly what was going to happen with Pharaoh if God didn't know the future because God wants to honor man's free will or whatever? The truth is he couldn't. He couldn't have known exactly how Pharaoh would respond, but he did. So first, Moses comes to know that God is holy. Secondly, he comes to know that God is all-knowing. Now, why does that matter? Who cares if God is all-knowing? Why does it matter? Why does Moses need to know this about God? Well, there are probably a lot of reasons, but it's important for all who know God to know that He's all-knowing. Because if we know that He's all-knowing, we won't try to put on an act for Him. We won't try to fool Him. We won't try to put on a, a whole pretentious act before Him. We won't try to pretend that we're something that we're not. We can't. Because we can't fool Him. We can't put on an act for Him. He knows everything about us. He sees everything about us. There's nothing in all of creation that has ever been hidden from Him or ever will be hidden from Him. He sees it all. He knows it all. It's important for us to know this because the clear implication is that our only choice in a relationship with Him is to be completely forthright, completely honest with Him. What kind of fool would think that he could put on an act with God and fool God? Only somebody... Who doesn't know God. But it's also important because if God knows everything, not only from the past, not only in the present, but also in the future, if God knows all of it, then the promises that He has made can be believed. There's nothing that's going to spring up and get in the way of His plans and purposes. He knows it all from eternity past. 
If God knows all things, then nothing can surprise Him and nothing can change Him. Nothing can thwart His plans. His plans and God Himself can be trusted and believed. The third thing that Moses learned, as Boyce points out, is that God is sovereign. That God is sovereign. When Moses was told by God that he had to go to the Pharaoh and, and demand the release of the Hebrew people. What's Moses' immediate response? Why me? Who am I? Right? He says, who am I that I should go to the Pharaoh and that I should bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? I'm a lowly shepherd. I, I, I'm nobody special. You can use somebody bigger than me, better than me is what he's thinking. This isn't something that Moses wanted to do. Think about all the excuses that Moses comes up with between chapters 3 and 4 with God. He was just like you and me, friends. What Moses wanted was an easy life. And shepherding, it's not the easiest life, but it's very routine, which becomes easier. He hadn't planned for anything like this. He hadn't prepared for doing something like this. And so he tries to come up with one excuse after another. Who am I? God's answer, don't worry, I'm going with you. Uh, but, but I don't speak very well. Well, don't worry, I'll, I'll put words in your mouth. I'll, I'll work with you. Oh, no, really, I, I don't speak very well. Okay, well, I'll, I'll let you use Aaron. How about that? He's coming up with one excuse after another, but... He could not make excuses with God. Why not? Because God is sovereign. And Moses had to learn that God was sovereign. If God says something, there's no questioning it. There's no going back on it. And that applied just as much to Moses in dealing with Pharaoh as it does to you and me today, family. God is holy. God is all-knowing. God is all-present. God is sovereign. And as such, He is to be feared and obeyed. Even when it's difficult. Even when it's difficult. If you tried to make excuses with God, I mean, the flesh, if you know how the flesh works, we will never run out of excuses, right? But none of them work with God. Not one of them. Ultimately, Moses' knowledge of God resulted in him obeying God and doing what God called him to do. Does your knowledge of God have the same effect on you? 1 John chapter 1, verses 6 and 7 say this, If we say that we have fellowship with Him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He Himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus His Son, cleanses us from all sin. Knowing God, having this ongoing learning relationship, deepening relationship, sanctifying relationship with God is a process that involves our growth in obedience, which is exactly what it means to walk in the light as He Himself is in the light. The problem for man is that the reality, the, the truth about God and who God is, is something that man, by nature, in his flesh, finds more threatening than anything else. The problem is not that man is unaware of God. He's entirely aware of God's existence. The problem is that man will not act on that knowledge 
and come to God in faith as God demands. He will not seek God, which is why Romans chapter 3 tells us no one seeks God, not even one. Why not? Because God is too threatening to the natural man. And man knows that if he does seek God, he's going to have to deal with things like God's holiness, his omniscience, and God's sovereignty. The natural man rightly finds all of God's attributes to be a threat, to be the greatest of threats against the natural man's comfort, sense of ease, sense of autonomy, and sense of well-being. And God knows that. God knows that on our own, not a single one of us would seek Him. Not a single one of us would dare come to Him and put the things that we love more than anything else by nature at risk. Because man would never take the initiative in seeking God. And because man would never take the initiative in knowing God, God has revealed Himself. In His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, most fully who's revealed through His Word and by His Spirit. By His grace, He draws us to Christ. Nobody would, nobody could ever know God if He did not do that. That's what Jesus said back in John 6.44. We'd never go to Christ on our own. The natural man thinks to himself, "I, I have way too much to lose. The things that I love most are all at stake. But by His grace... He draws us to Christ. He opens our ears to hear the Gospel and the Spirit quickens our hearts to believe it. The Spirit brings the truth about God and about ourselves not only to our minds, but from our minds down to our hearts where nobody else can reach, where even we can't reach on our own. And while we would be decimated at the truth about our sin as it relates to God's holiness, we are enabled by the Spirit to find comfort in God's sovereign promise of redemption, of forgiveness for all who believe in Jesus Christ. There is nothing in this world, nothing in your life, No possibility, no potential, no offers, no nothing. There is nothing in your life that is more important than knowing God in the sense that Jesus is talking about here in John 17.3. Nothing even comes close. Not even in the same league. There's nothing more important in life than knowing God in this relational sense. We must Know things about Him, yes, but that alone is not enough. Do you know Him? Are you learning about Him in the sense that you are walking and you're living your life in the light, in fellowship with Him? Do you not only obey Him, but do you delight in obeying Him? Now maybe if you're being really honest with yourself, maybe your answer is I'm not sure. That's okay. Here's the question for that. Do you want to delight in His ways? Even when your flesh makes that really difficult. If you know Him in this way, friends, this is eternal life. Knowing the one true God who has revealed Himself fully in Jesus Christ, 
who is fully God, fully man, sent to live a perfect sinless life and to die the death of sinners. The covenant of works that Adam failed to uphold, Christ upheld and fulfilled. His perfect sinless righteousness is imputed. It's credited. It's transferred. Given freely by grace to all who believe in Christ. And our sin and our shame in exchange is imputed. It's transferred to Him on the cross where He bore the wrath of God in our place against our sin. Knowing God, the true God who reveals Himself in Scripture and in the person of Jesus Christ is the highest and greatest thing that you can pursue in life. Putting anything else first before pursuing God is the pursuit of something far, far lesser. So what are you pursuing first and foremost in your life? What in your life is competing with the pursuit of God? Knowing Him is more important than chasing after or pursuing power or money. Knowing Him is more important than pursuing the respect of your fellow man. Contrary to man's ideas, knowing Him and being in fellowship with Him is anything but boring. Knowing Him is the essence of eternal life. Not just a future blessing, but also, and just as importantly, a present possession for all who have believed in Christ. A quality of life that sets us apart from the world that does not have eternal life. And that eternal life is found by entering into fellowship with God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We must under, what we must understand here is that both believers and unbelievers will have some sort of life that endures beyond this life. This isn't all there is for anybody. Those who rebel and those who reject Christ will live forever in hell, eternally and consciously enduring God's wrath. But all who believe in God's promises, all who believe in Christ the Messiah He sent to redeem us. All who believe in Him will live eternally in peaceful, joyful fellowship in the light with God through Christ Jesus. And that life is not a life that we have to wait until glory to experience. It's something that we currently have on this side of glory. Forever in fellowship with the one true God through Jesus Christ whom He sent to redeem us. It's something, family, you already have. Something that has already begun within you. The moment you started to believe and the moment you first belonged to Christ. The moment you put your faith in Him and you knew you were His. Not because of something you've done, but because it was God's eternal plan to draw you to Christ. Live your life in light of this reality. That eternal life isn't just a number of, an infinite number of years, but it's a quality of life that sets us apart 
from the world. Live your life in light of that reality. And by God's grace, may you shine like a light in the darkness of this world as you do by His grace. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You for the way that it instructs us. And we are grateful to know things about You. But one of the things that we know about You is that You have brought us into fellowship with Yourself through Christ our Savior. And so we pray, O Lord, that this truth would transform us. That it would change the way we think about You, change the way we think about ourselves, change the way we think about the time that we've been given in this life. By Your grace, may we use our lives to glorify Christ in this dark world. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.